So I'm going to open us up with uh, the couple of paragraphs from the catechism itself. It goes about the dogmas themselves. So the magisterium, uh, according to paragraph 88 and 89, fully exercises her authority, an authority from Christ himself, when defining dogmas which oblige us, Christians, not just Catholics actually, to an irrevocable adherence of faith to the truths contained in divine revelation and truths having a necessary connection with them. And indeed, uh, we need dogmas because there is an organic connection between dogmas in our spiritual life. That's what the Catechism says. Because dogmas are lights along the path of our faith. They illuminate it and make it more secure. Now, some worry that dogmas or anything that we say about Mary elevates her too much and that we commit idolatry, right? However, um, one question I always want to pose to people is, is it idolatry to speak highly, dearly about a person? Does it cross over that line? Is, it, is that the line of idolatry, just to speak nicely or greatly about a person? Personally, for me, that's kind of like a really low bar in a way <laughs> for, for idolatry, right? Because um, when, we comes, when it comes to worship, I guess we, we, have, we have lost the sense that worship also involves sacrifice, right? Especially in the sacri holy sacrifice of the Mass, right? Sometimes worship has been reduced to the word of just saying nice things, saying, giving honor. Definitely it involves that. But um, in its true sense, if we read the Old Testament, that, the, that worship involves sacrifice. And in a very graphic way in the Old Testament, like, they even have to kill animals for it. I mean, like, I don't know if anybody here has butchered an animal. That's a lot of work, right? So in that question, is it idolatry to speak highly of a person? And if I would mirror what St. Paul says in a lot of his epistles, he would say, by no means. And that's what he says all the time. So can we love, honor, praise Mary more than God himself had done? Can I like, really ask that honestly of ourselves or anybody? Right. Can we actually do that, exceed how God has done it himself? Because one, he actually sent his own messenger, Gabriel, because like um, an angel is a messenger from God, right? So you have a message from God just to say to Mary, this lowly handmaiden, that she is full of grace, right? It's like a special message. And our Lord, who was obedient to her um, himself, and to St. Joseph, of course, not to, ex not to um, exclude him, and also, our Lord increased in wisdom. That's what Luke says in, in his scripture, like increase in wisdom. And as he was growing up and called her blessed, for Mary kept, heard the word of God and definitely kept it. It's not just hearing it and actually, oh yeah, cool. Like I agree with that, what God is saying. Actually, it's an, in a very different sense, in a very tangible sense, that she heard the word of God himself, like the capital W, and actually kept it for how many years, several decades, right? So, and also to the Holy Spirit himself, by the mouth of St. Elizabeth, who said, blessed art thou amongst women, right? So basically in our prayer of the Hail Mary, we call it, right? Is basically just parroting what God himself has said to Mary through different messengers, by Gabriel, by, um, by St. Elizabeth, and many other people as well. But I've also heard many Catholics become defensive every time they speak about Mary. In a way that they would always start like, oh, well, we don't worship Mary. It is true. Yeah, we don't worship her in that sense that we don't offer a mass to, like, um, to Mary, right? If we actually, I think it's one, one cool thing about the, um, I guess, the Novus Ordo and the Ordinary. It's like we actually hear the prayers of, um, of the priest. And actually, it's offered to God if we actually hear it really intently. And we don't really offer it to, to anybody, not even to the saints, even though we hear their names, right? But I can tell you that the church has no problem using the word worship in regards to Mary. It's kind of odd, like, wait. So once you have an interlocutor, let's say a Protestant, or somebody outside, or somebody just wants to question whatever the church is teaching, um, but once they give you this dogma, like, but the church has no problem saying about worshiping Mary. Right? Like word for word. Then the next question is like, what do we mean by worship? Like just like I mentioned before, like what do you mean by that? I think in the 
Anglican rite, um, they use in the wedding vows, right? They actually use the word worship. I do the worship to, to one of the, I think to the bride. I think it's, sometimes we have reduced certain words to, I guess, the common language. We have to kind of um, refresh that. So those are a couple of, couple of prologues that I want to just give for, for tonight. So let's start with the first one. Holy Mary, Mother of God, is what I call this segment right here. So I just want to quote a little bit from the first canon of the Council of Ephesus, which is way back then when there were only three digits in the year. 431. Now there's four digits, right? It's all the way to 2000, right? So now it's 431. And if you want to see it, it's easily found in, um, in the online. So if anyone does not confess that Emmanuel is God in truth, and therefore that the Holy Virgin is the Mother of God, for she bore in a fleshly way, the word of God became flesh. Let him be anathema. So in a way that actually dogmas can be proclaimed in the form of anathema. It's not like a, um, a logical uh, syllogism, let's say, right? But we can actually easily um, explain that. Because here's um, one quote from, from Luke. Behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to thy word, right? They say Catholics don't know their Bible, but actually, every kind of, once you get something started, they actually can finish a sentence, right? They just, we just don't know where it's from, right? Just like Paul says, like, as it is written somewhere. Like, we don't have to know where it's from, but we do know that it's from the Bible. So uh, just to get this um, uh, about Mother of God, right? So I guess everybody knows here what, what that entails. So first premise, right? Jesus is God. I guess everybody agrees with that, right? Mary is the mother of Jesus. That's the second premise. Therefore, Mary is the mother of God. It's pretty much a straightforward um, syllogism there. It's pretty logical. It's pretty easy to follow that. So this conclusion should always carry with it the first two premises. So the first two that I st stated, that Jesus is God and Mary is the mother of Jesus. Which can, it, that's the thing about um, dogmas, actually. They're kind of like, sentences or conclusions about something, but we should not forget what actually led to them. If the church has pronounced like these are what the reasons why we say this, then um, that should be part of reflecting upon that simple statement. Mary is the mother of God. So the first reminds us that Jesus is God, right? Not just a God, right? So in a way like um, you have a pantheon, like the mythologies and things like that. But Jesus is God in, in the true sense. And while the second premise that Mary is the mother of Jesus tells us also that Jesus has, has a parent and it solidifies with it that the incarnation was real, that he was also man. That's why when you say that true God, true man, right? So it's not just in the way analogous to being a man. So it's something real, something that we can really identify with, not just in a really vague sense or just the same word that we happen to use about Jesus. So while it is Marian in notion, actually, that this dogma is substantially Christological in intention. Actually, if you read the history about this um, during uh, that fifth century, right, that there was a time that people just wasn't, how, like they're not sure like how to enunciate what, who Jesus is. How, how can even talk about it? Some would say that he was a, either a demigod, which is the Ar Arian heresy, that nowadays actually people still exist that are Arians, right? We call them the Jehovah's Witnesses, right? Um, but here's the problem though. So because any hesitation to say that Mary is the mother of God will easily lead into questioning whether the first premise that Jesus is God, right? So that's one thing that will fall right away if you can't just, um, just accept the, the conclusion. Or that Jesus is not truly Mary's son, which is the basis of the incarnation, right? So um, Jesus is more than just a person that was existed a long time ago, had some teachings, and we follow his philosophy. I guess that's what most people think about religion nowadays, right? Just following a philosophy of a guru back then. Or maybe that still exists today. We actually follow a person, not just the teachings of a person. Yes, it, we have the teachings to the church, but in a real way, we actually follow a person who's, who existed and still does, and it's up in heaven with his body and everything. 
So by the fourth commandment as well, that uh, it's not just saying that Jesus is the mother of God somewhere out there, right? That Mary's divine motherhood is the basis for any honor we give her. In a lot of the dogmas and a lot of um, the church teachings about what we say about Mary, they always mention about um, her divine motherhood, what it means like to be a mother of Jesus herself. So any honor we give to her is based on that. But on the flip side, any kind of disrespect, um, dishonor, or insult, um, God forbid, is an affront to God himself. In many church documents, if I even use the word blasphemy, which is kind of odd, but um, it, 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 is that, um, it is that intense, that kind of um, identification with the mother of God um, ourselves. So just to quote a um, part of scripture here, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing near, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. That's from the Gospel of John. I said that in a just reading the sense, but if we think about it, what actually the narrative was of that, of that, um, that quote, Jesus himself was hanging on the cross when he said that. I don't know if anybody has hanged by their hands and has tried to say something after being hanging for three hours, right? I think there's a devotion, right? The seven last words of Jesus doing during Lent. I guess this was one of them. Um, that it is hard to speak at that level, but he saved his energy just for that intention. And there's a reason why that was done, right? So remember that the word became flesh. And what do we mean by that? He's not just quoting John himself. Um, that became flesh, like this right here. You can pinch him, right? You can see him. He walked around, um, on earth. He had shoes. He had sandals. He wore clothes. So um, he was an infant. He was a baby, right? A child. And I'm sure that in his hidden years, which you call ordinary time, <laughs> right? Um, in his hidden years, um, be between the time uh, when he was lost in the temple till his public ministry, that together with St. Joseph, Mary herself taught our Lord. Like how, probably many here has, have been parents, right? Um, how to walk, how to speak, um, how to pray even, uh, how to eat, how to put on clothes. And kind of should reflect upon that the clothes that, that he wore during the passion that was torn into pieces, right? Who Guess who made that, right? Um, and how to tie his sandals. Everything that Jesus had in his body, he learned that from somebody, right? Either uh, the Blessed Mother or St. Joseph. And those are kind of like the images that we want to invoke every time um, we just hear the dogma mother of God. This is more than just a head knowledge for us or something that can, we, we can answer for Confirmation 101 or 201 and then people just leave for, um, because the thing is Catholic graduation. No. It's, it's, it's a truth that actually, it has some weight to it because all the dogmas actually hang upon this truth. The dogma is basically what it means. Like a dogma is something that's truth. It's a sentence, right? So let Mary be a mother to you as she is and still is, still is to our Lord. It didn't cease when she gave birth. She still is till this day. And since the incarnation is real, um, we probably have a couple of icons or images of Jesus, right? But since um, in a fleshly way, he derived his flesh from Mary, we can guarantee that they look alike, right? We can guarantee that. So that is the, um, the first dogma about Mother of God. It's more than just a syllogism, something that we can say to, to um, I guess, our interlocutors. Boom, Catholics, one point. Non-Catholic zero. Like no, it's 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 a it's a devotional thing that we can actually um, use as a launching pad for anything we want to imagine. We, be be creative about it, right? And for those who are mothers, they can easily, uh, I guess, um, invoke that image on how we how you've taken care of your children and things like that. So that's the first one. The second one is um, uh, Blessed Mary, ever Virgin. So this one was dogmatically defined in the Lateran Council um, in 649. So 
But it, what it says here is that if anyone does not properly and truly confess in accord with the Holy Fathers, that the Holy Mother of God and ever Virgin and Immaculate Mary in the earliest of the ages conceived of the Holy Spirit without seed, namely God, the Word Himself, specifically and truly, who was born of God the Father before all ages, that she incorruptibly bore, and her virginity remaining indestructible even after his birth, let him be condemned. It's a really long sentence. Actually, most dogmas are actually a full sentence with a bunch of commas in it. <laughs> That's basically what that is. So a dogma is basically a really long sentence. If you read about it, like you just keep tracking where that, where that period is, probably 10 lines from that website, from Vatican.va, like that. So it's, a it's one of the canons from the Lateran Council in 649. Uh, what I want to tie with this one is um, a passage from the prophet Ezekiel. Like, prophet Ezekiel, what do you mean? So here's what it says in, from chapter 44. Then the Lord brought me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary, which faces east, and that it was shut. And he said to me, This gate shall remain shut. It shall not be opened, and no one shall enter by it, for the Lord, the God of Israel, has entered by it. Therefore, it shall remain shut. Probably thinking, like, Louis just like lifted that out of Scripture. That has nothing to do with Mary. Right, but... This is not my own opinion. I'm actually from um, St. Ambrose of Milan. This is what he wrote. Is not Mary this gate by whom the Savior entered into the world? This is the gate of righteousness, as he himself said, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Mary is the gate. Since it is written that the Lord hath entered in by it, therefore it shall be shut after birth. For as a virgin, she both conceived and brought forth. So when it comes to the dogma of the perpetual virginity of Mary, a lot of people get hung up on the, um, the I guess, having relations with St. Joseph. But if I read you like the last two lines are, her virginity remaining indestructible even after his birth. Let's think about that. So, the common objection that Mary and Joseph had relations after Jesus' birth basically is somewhat peripheral to the dogma. And what I mean by that is that if you focus on what it said, remaining a virgin when giving birth, think about that. It's like anatomically speaking, remaining a virgin when giving birth takes a miracle. It does. Um, I will never experience that pain uh, that uh, mothers have gone through, right? But... This is a miracle that took place during the nativity as well. So uh, if we can think about that, it's like if we can just think about the mystery of the perpetual virginity, um, before it's fine. It's like easy can, people can think easy. Oh, yeah, it's like they had no relations um, before Jesus was, was born. During, yeah, of course, like they have relations. But if you think about it anatomically, right? So how does that even happen? But it should not be a surprise to us. Technically, if you've if actually been um, paying attention to a lot of the scriptures. Because one, a couple of things that happened in scripture, that God himself appeared to Moses in a bush. In a bush that was not consumed. If I put my hand right under fire, I'm going to scream, and tonight we're done, right? So um, that bush wasn't cons consumed. And also, Jesus walked on water. And he also healed Malchus. The guy that um, Peter cut off his ear during the, the first stages of the Passion, right? Jesus healed that. But to quickly address the, the objections that I guess we've seen, we've heard or seen or read um, from interactions with either ex-Catholics, unfortunately, um, and I guess Protestants, um, I would recommend actually to you reading St. Jerome. <laughs> from his letter against Helvidius in 383 AD. So St. Jerome back then, um, in, th in the year 300s towards 400s, he already has addressed this um, problem where St. Jerome addressed the, the objections of Helvidius, basically the common ones that you've heard today, that um, the, the, the gospel said that jo Joseph knew her not until she had born a son. Basically, most people say implying that 
Joseph knew Mary afterwards, right? That's most of the time, like, that's kind of like the thread that people pull when it comes to that scripture. The second one, it's like Mary brought forth her firstborn son, implying if you have a first, you have second, you have third, you have fourth, right? And also they said that scripture says that Jesus has, has brothers. Well, you have James, Joseph, um, who else? Simon, Judas, and, and even St. Paul himself called James the brother of the Lord. How does that make sense? So, Catholics, you're wrong about that one. So while the first aspect of this dogma highlights a miracle and um, ponder upon this mystery, right? So that should be like the primary focus when um, we're trying to imagine the, the perpetual virginity of Mary. It's more than, again, it's more than just the correct answer to a confirmation one-on-one exam. The second one, the second aspect of it, answering certain scripture objections from different people has, a, um, has an apologetic in nature, just like what St. Peter said. Always be prepared to say sorry. No, that's not what he said. That's not what apologetics mean, right? So always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who calls you to account for the hope that is in you. Hopefully we have that hope. Yet do it with gentleness and reverence. But then the, the following question then happens is, whether Mary is a virgin or not, how does that affect our faith? How does it affect our Sunday Mass? How does it affect the rosary? We can just kind of like walk by, it's like, who cares in a way, right? But as I mentioned in my opening, um, dogmas are lights in the path of faith, right? You can try exploring the world with a flashlight. Go ahead and do that, but that, that battery will run out at some point. But the church throughout the centuries, even till today, um, provides these lights to illuminate and guide us along the narrow narrow path of salvation. So there's a point that the church has done this. So use them, right? So these are lights that the church has erected for us. Use them. So Mary's perpetual virginity is significant in this way. This might be pretty dry, but it's significant in this way. It is true. It is true. And because it is true, it's good. And because it's good, it will bear good fruit. So the Catechism says that Mary's virginity manifests God's absolute initiative in the Incarnation. That's paragraph 503. And that her virginity is the sign of her faith, unadulterated by any doubt, and of her undivided gift of herself to God's will. So that's what Mary's perpetual virginity points to. It's not that the church is hates sex or obsessed about pelvic matters, you know. So our culture is the one that's obsessed about that, right? We mock virginity. And boys see it as basically a badge to collect, right? As a, a passage to, to manhood or to prove that they are men. Or girls maybe see it as a hindrance to becoming a woman, right? And because sins, sin darkens the intellect, to put that crassly, sin makes us stupid. That's basically what it means, right? Our culture does not even know what a man or woman is. It's sad. It's pathetic, actually. But to Mary, we cry. We poor banished children of Eve. To Mary, we send up our sighs mourning and weeping in this valley of tears. So that prayer at the end of the rosary, it's kind of like, it, it has, it's like, are we just saying that because like, oh yeah, I memorized that thing, right? Like what are the things that make us um, sad, make us weep about the world? Maybe somebody has fallen away, right? Or you yourself are struggling with something about the faith. Something about that the church has taught that is out of date, right? June is coming. And we know what people celebrate in June. Maybe that should be a topic that we'll have next month. Actually against the typical thing that they celebrate during June, which is Pride Month, right? Imagine celebrate 
celebrating sin. It's kind of like sad. So the dogmas reminds us that the church actually is a divine institution. Not just some authorities saying things, go accept this or you go to hell. Right? The church has said that these are lights for you. We know the path is dark. The, narrow is, the, the path is narrow. Salvation, people think that everybody goes to heaven. That's what Jesus said, right? It's actually hard to find the narrow path. So Christ himself built the church upon Peter, the rock, the original rock, right? Dwayne Johnson just appropriated that for himself. So um, the church's wisdom is from God himself. So it, it is okay to struggle sometimes, most of the time, to understand the purpose, the intention, or maybe even the immediate implication of any dogmas. This was pronounced on the seventh century, right? It, it may take a millennium, more than a millennium, for actually for the implications of it to really take fruit. It just, I mean, we just have to be patient about it. So as St. John Henry Newman said in his Apologia, 10,000 difficulties do not make one doubt. Difficulty and doubt are incommensurate. I mean, it's just a matter of degree. They are totally different things. Because difficulty is normal because our understanding is limited. So it takes humility to know that our understanding is limited when it comes to these things. And it takes time. Maybe some more than others. Definitely there are things that have taken me a long time even Right now, it's kind of like reflecting upon them. But doubt is different. So to doubt is to basically stand over the church, right? Our mother, that the church have used that word before, and to oppose her to her face, saying, you're wrong on this. Guess what, the, what, what those teachings are? Most of the time, they're like pelvic matters too, right? That um, people are going to try to um, guess, say to the church, you're wrong. One, contraception. Two, homosexuality, things, everything. Three, divorce and remarriage, right? So a lot of things, for some reason, is down here, below the belt. Unfortunately, this, is, this has been the, the stance of many standing outside and or those who have left the church, unfortunately. So by meditating upon Mary's virginity, may we be like her, the handmaids of the Lord, that's from the Magnificat, right? And... May we not be hopelessly devoted, right? We don't want to be hopelessly devoted, but be overflowing with the virtue of hope. Again, hope is a virtue. And to be devoted to the word of God, for he has done great things for me, for you, for you, for you, for you, for you. Like he has done great things for me and for you. And the word not merely in sound waves or letters that you see out of, out of a paper or read in a screen, not that kind of word, but as we hear in the last gospel, or say in the Angelus, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word is a who, not just a what. The word is Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Right, so that is the, the second dogma. Mary, the Immaculate Conception. What the Magnificat says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my, soul, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Now, many uh, people who would try to, I guess, attack this dogma, right? Now, how can Mary be free from sin, which is what the Immaculate Conception means, right? But still need a Savior. Scripture, it says, says it. Mary said it, that she needs a Savior. What's, like then Catholics may be wrong about this. The church was wrong. She was not immaculately conceived. Well, the answer is, spoiler alert, to be saved from sin. Like, what? Louis, like, heresy. But no. So now here, this um, benediction, I call it benediction, from Jude, the last couple of passages from Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you without blemish before the presence of his glory with rejoicing, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Probably wondering why I quoted that. 
I don't know if you caught it, but God is able to keep you from falling. So there is a preventative aspect of salvation more than just redemptive. People have I've used this analogy, right? That, um, yes, I guess most of us, except Mary, has fallen into this muddy pit. I don't know if anyone has fallen into a muddy pit before. I guess in California, that's not a thing, right? But um, somewhere dirty, you, get, you, you fall, fell into it, and somebody kind of pulled you up from it. That's, I guess, for all of us. That is our plight. But when it comes to, um, to the Blessed Mother, it is preventative. So before she walked to the pit, Jesus himself, in view of being the mother of God, the merits of Jesus Christ, um, that she was prevented from that. So what's preventing us from saying that that is even possible? Right? So then the connection there is, like, what do we think of the, of the um, omnipotence of God? So it puts that into question. It's like, what do we think really, how, how much God can do for each one of us? So that is one of the implications of the, of the Immaculate Conception. However, um, on, a, on, a, on a side point, I'm not trying to prove this dogma from Scripture, by the way. Not even the church has tried to do it. Yes, like um, uh, passages, they've used passages which um, um, allude or witness to, to, to the truth. Although the passage in Genesis, right, they call it the proto-gospel. Proto-Evangelium, right? That in, in Genesis 3, I will put enmity between you and the woman. That's what God said to, to Eve, right? But it's not about Eve on, the, on that passage because there's already a thing that happened between um, Eve and the serpent or the devil. So who was the woman here? Read John, right? So there's a reason why John started with his gospel. In the beginning was the word. Guess how Genesis starts as well? In the beginning, right? And then in chapter 2, Jesus addresses um, Mary as woman. I don't know if, um, if any mom here has any son or kid has, uh, has addressed you as, Hey, woman. Yeah, you know? <laughs> Get out of here. That's what's going to happen. But in, 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 um, in how John did it, in, in the, in, in his, according to his go- uh, book of the gospel, um, there is a reason why he used that, um, that word of how Jesus addresses um, our Blessed Mother. And then in Luke, um, what it also says here is, uh, Hail, full of grace. Right? So people say, See, like, if you are full of grace, you have no room for sin, therefore you're immaculately conceived. That will fly. Like, yeah, that will work. Um, and it vouches for the doctrine. However, I want to quote St. Thomas um, from uh, his Summa. From basically from the, f- the first question in his summa, basically said, thus in scripture, no confusion results. All spiritual senses are founded on one, the literal, the literal sense, from which alone can any argument be drawn. It's pretty straightforward there. A lot of people just argue about allegorical meaning of, of scripture, right? It definitely has that avenue for sure. Um, if you pay attention to the, to the catechism, there's four senses, there's four ways you can inter- interpret a passage. Technically, there's two major ones, right? The first one is the literal sense. The second one is the spiritual sense. And the spiritual sense is broken into three, right? But the spiritual sense is based on the literal. So the literal is not just um, um, what we mean by, for example, we said that it's raining cat- cats and dogs, Actually, are cats and dogs falling from the sky? The literal meaning of it is it's an idiom, right? Something it's not literalistic. But anyway, that's a different talk as well. But um, I want to quote the the dogma of um, uh, of, of the immaculate conception. It is true, not because um, that's what we see from scripture alone. That's not what we do with scripture, right? It is it is true because Pope Pius the taught it infallibly in eighteen fifty four called Ineffabilis Deus. What he said here is, the Immaculate Conception holds that the most blessed Virgin Mary in the first instance of her conception by a singular grace and privilege granted by Almighty God in view of the merits of Jesus Christ was preserved free from all stain of original sin. This is a doctrine revealed by God and therefore to be believed firmly and constantly 
by all the faithful. What's interesting about dogmas is it's not really a, an explanation what it was. It's kind of like a matter of fact, like here, here you go, accept it. Right? It, kind of ta- it, it takes um, a while for us to get like, why did even the church say that? Right? Sometimes it's a, what was the context? What was the culture doing that the church had to do this? Right? So then the question, I guess, from our talk today is, like, what are the significance of the Marian dogmas? So the question is, what if we believe that Mary was preserved, like, what was preserved free from stain of original sin or not? Does it matter? Is, does it matter? Does it, like, what, what matters is Jesus was sinless, right? That's, that's what matters, right? Like, I guess that's what a lot of people would um, argue from. It's like, that's what matters. Jesus is sinless. Now, first I want to pause and um, what we want to do is to identify where that objection is coming from, either if it's, it's coming personally or somebody that we're talking to. Where is the objection or even maybe the hesitation is coming from, right? Is it from difficulty or is it from doubt? So we want to identify that. What does this objection say about the authority of the church? Those are kind of like the background question that we start thinking when, um, when the objection or hesitation comes about. Um, but as revealed to us infallibly, this Immaculate conception is a singular privilege. And we know what singular means, right? It's like just one. Only one got it. And that's our blessed mother. But so if, um, if it's coming from a more like a doubtful position or questioning position, not from a difficulty like St. John Henry Newman said, right? That difficulty and doubt are different things. But if, you're coming, if somebody's coming from doubt, I'll be careful to question the privileges God grant to anyone. If you've read Job, right, like things that, hey, God, like, why is this happening to me, you know? Like, what, what is this? Like, and then God basically came down to Job, didn't answer his question. He questioned Job, like, who are you? Right? It's like, where were you when I built all these things? Right? That's what basically the answer to Job was. It's kind of like putting him down in a way. But kind of have to understand, like, God has sovereignty on things. And, yeah, he can grant privileges to people that he wants to. And in a way, that kind of makes me, shouldn't make me feel like, why don't I have that? You know? Should be like, hey, that's great that um, our blessed mother actually got that, that got that privilege. So I want to quote what Jesus said to the laborers in the vineyard about this. So if I know the, that story about the vineyard where um, in three different times of the day, Right, he was saw he, he saw people that are idle. He needs to hire them at the end of the day. It's like so he's he hired somebody from the beginning of the day, middle, towards the end of the day, but towards the end of the day, he paid them all the same. So Jesus was a socialist. No, he wasn't. No. So but what his answer was to the people that said, like, hey, what's up, man? It's like we were here the whole day begrudging all our work, and the people who you hired later in the day, you just paid them the same thing. So his response was. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? It's kind of like, you know. So in a way, like, that can be like a, a, um, to prick the, either the objection or the hesitation. Where is it coming from? Again, where is the objection coming from? The church has said that it was wholly fitting that so wonderful a mother should be ever is resplendent with the glory of most sublime holiness and so completely free from all taint of original sin that she would triumph utterly over the ancient serpent. So it is not an argument from absolute necessity. People have kind of like taken that step too far in apologetics too, which is unfortunate. It's the church herself have used the word fitting, but it it is right and just <laughs> if we use that same thing as we seen as or in ordinary. If it's meet and right, so to do, right? So this dogma touches upon actually many things. One, it touches upon the doctrine of grace. In a, in another way, it touches upon the doctrine dogma actually of original sin, and how we, after Adam and Eve, inherit original sin, and then. On a more foundational level, actually for, for me, it clarified my understanding of evil itself, what it means to be human, and the nature of things. So let me just um, flesh it out a little bit. So 
There is a belief about original sin that when Adam and Eve um, disobeyed God, ate of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, was it an apple? It, wasn't, it doesn't say it was an apple, right? That their nature was tainted and passed that tainted nature down. Yeah, you can, we can kind of like hear it in an orthodox way. That, yeah, we can make sense of that. However, um, sometimes the, the people will clarify that, analogize like um, that nature, human nature is like ink mixed in water. So there's something added to something that's supposed to be clean, right? But the problem with that is that now evil is something positive, something that is added to something. So contrast, like, just like polluting a river, right? So contrast that to a privation understanding of evil. So what do you mean by that privation understanding of evil? Or lacking something that is good. So it's more like a vacuum rather than something like a solution, something mixed into it. So there's it's a two different understanding of what evil is. So this is not my personal opinion. Actually, this is a thing that, flesh, that was fleshed out by St. Augustine himself um, in, the, in the fourth century. So if, if evil, so the, the, um, the logical conclusion of the other way, that a pot, like evil is something positive. So if evil is a something, then it was created. Right, And according to the gospel, if all things were made through him and nothing without him was not anything made that was made, then it will easily lead us to think that God made evil. It's kind of like the conclusion of it. Maybe not, not too many people actually take it to its logical conclusion, but that is one of its, um, where it will, could lead you, and that will be disastrous in a way. That will lead to some sort of a dualistic a view of the world that there's the evil force and the good force, right? Therefore, Star Wars is the new religion. No, that's not it, right? So God is sovereign. Satan, devil, it's not like the yin-yang kind of thing, you know? Totally different. So I believe that the privation of evil, as articulated, again, by St. Augustine, is the correct one. So, but don't mishear me by saying that evil is nothing. It does not exist. That's not what I'm saying. But uh, yeah, people have experienced what we call evil, um, unfortunate things that happen to their loved ones or ourselves. But that's not what I'm saying that, yeah, that's like an illusion or something like that. What I'm saying is that evil is basically parasitic on something that is good. It is parasitic on something that is good. Because we have this innate sense that was given by God himself to desire what is good. The only thing is, we settle for less. Many times, right? I think C.S. Lewis said something about that. So then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, what he said was, it was very good. It was very good. So this then gives us a better view of nature, especially of human nature. Because sin actually makes us less in accordance with human nature. So part of human nature is the ability to reason, right? And sin is against reason. And if you keep chipping away at reason, guess what happens to it? It gets less and less and less. And as I said earlier, sin darkens the intellect and we think of crazy things. Most of the time we use the word nature, but what we actually mean is just tendency. Something that we tend to do interchangeably with that. But we should not forget that nature, in its true meaning, is about essence. It's more significant than just what we do, right? It's not just a material thing or how our body moves to this and that. Because nature reveals purpose. It does reveal purpose. It reveals what is conducive or good to one's nature. While whatever isn't conducive to that nature, we call evil. If you have a plant, right, we know that it's a plant. What's good for it is water, sunlight, things like that. If you put other stuff, let's say rat poison in it, 
or something else, maybe bleach, something like that, it will die, right? You cannot know that innately, maybe we learned that from science, but um, if we know the nature of something, we know what's good for it. And since we know what's good for it, we know what will destroy it as well. And we have to restore that sense of nature, of, what, of being. So it is no surprise that our culture is the way it is. Scientism reduced the understanding of being by half. Why do I say half? All it cares about is the two of the four causes. And what, 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 the, what those two are, the material and the efficient cause. So what the stuff is made out of and how it was put together, right? or who put it together, basically. The formal and final causes are rejected, especially in school. You don't hear about those four causes. I didn't hear about it in school. I heard about it when I was reading stuff. I mean, I was reading about the Council of Trent. They were talking about justification. They have all causes. Like, these are foreign words to me. But did you know that the church teaches as well that there can be no true education which is not wholly directed to man's last end? Church teaches this. There can be no true education which is not wholly directed to man's last end. So that is basically the final cause, right? And that in the present order of providence, since God has revealed himself to us in Jesus, who alone is the way, the truth, and the life, there can be no ideally perfect education which is not Christian education. The church has said this. That was back in 1929 by Pope Pius XI, Divini Ilius Magistri. So the church has said something about education. And do we think that our present state of education is in accord to that? Do our, is our present age, our present education, lead people, point people to where they're going to be? Baltimore Catechism, what did it say? Like, why did God make me? To know? Right, to know, to, to know, to serve, and love. Right? So that we'll be happy with him in this life and then the next. Right? So those are like what, it's like what, what pulls us. It's not just what we do right now. Like there's something that pulls us ahead of us. God himself is the one doing it. But people have, or our education system has failed to point that to people. Or even deny it, right? So the four causes and the church teaching on education are separate topics for separate talks, of course. Right, I don't want to kind of go through that. Anyways, the distinction between the divine and human nature isn't about the presence of or the ability to sin. That's not the distinction between the divine and human nature. That isn't the dis distinction between the divine and human nature. The human nature of Jesus is not different from ours. Because if it is different, then can we really say that Jesus is true man? But as St. Gregory of Nazianzus in the 4th century, Archbishop of Constantinople, which is now Istanbul, um, for that which, is, which he has not assumed, he has not healed. But what which is united to his Godhead is also saved. So we say that Jesus has a human nature, not in an analogous sense, but in the real sense, like he has a human nature, a human nature just like ours. But like I said, it's not a nature, it's not a tendency to do something that is bad. It is of something of an essence, it's something more significant than what we do or fail to do, right? So I dare to say, actually, I don't know if this is heresy, but being sinless does not automatically grant you heaven. It does not grant you heaven automatically. If you live to 100 did not sin, only did good and stuff like that, then you only get 100 years of bliss. It kind of makes sense, right? It's like transaction, that's what justice is. Right, 100 years of good, 100 years of nice and pleasure. But a bliss of bliss, joy, happiness, that is befitting 100 years of good. But to enjoy eternity? Nah, it doesn't, that doesn't make any sense, right? You do 100 years of work and then you enjoy, let's say, 1,000 or even more. Eternity. That doesn't make any sense. So, that kind of highlights that the immaculate conception itself um, highlights that heaven or the beatific vision 
is a gift. We do not earn it. We just don't. Only by God's grace. Only by God's grace. And the dogma of immaculate conception highlights that fact. Mary, full of grace, rejoices in God, her Savior, as she said herself. The last one is um, Mary assumed into heaven. So in accordance to the church's instruction, I will let the church's word speak to you the dogmatic declaration of Mary's assumption into heaven instead of just paraphrasing it myself. So in um, 1950, this was how many years now? 72 years or so? Uh, Pope Pius XII declared in Munificentissimus Deus, a couple of um, lines here, for which reason, after we have poured, for, poured forth prayers of supplication again and again to God and have invoked the light of the spirit of truth for the glory of Almighty God, who has lavished his special affection upon the Virgin Mary, for the honor of her son, the immortal king of the ages, and the victor over sin and death, for the increase of the glory of that same august mother, and for the joy and exaltation of the entire church, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, of the blessed apostles Peter and Paul, and by our own authority, we pronounce, declare, and define it to be a divinely revealed dogma that the Immaculate Mother of God, the Ever-Virgin Mary, having completed the course of her earthly life, was assumed body and soul into heavenly glory. That's one sentence, like I said. Dogmas are just basically a full sentence. Probably we call it um, a run-in sentence today, but um, that's the full dogma, it's a sentence. So many have claimed that dogmas are pronounced only when there is a dispute or there's, they're put into question. You probably heard that, right, many times. But that may be true for most dogmas. But if you read the last two about the Immaculate Conception and the Assumption of Mary, if you read the papal documents regarding them, you'll learn that they were actually primarily motivated by petitions. It's not necessarily there's a problem in the world, like, hey, like, let's pronounce a dogma or some sort of heretic that's like Arius. Questioning because like, people have questioned these dogmas way before 1950, before 1800s, right? So the church has proclaimed this because there was a petition, the petition of the faithful through their bishops. That's basically how it, how it happened. But in the same document of the Assumption, the church hopes three things: what they want to accomplish. One, for all Christians to be united and increase in love and piety towards the Blessed Mother. It's one of the things that they want to accomplish with that um, dogmatic declaration. Number two, that may this dogmatic declaration that knowing that, the Mary, that Mary was assumed to heaven, it may help us clearly see God's desire for our body and soul, what God has planned for our body and soul, and realize that materialism corrupts morals. This is actually from the document itself. Materialism corrupts morals. It extinguishes the light of virtue. And materialism ruins lives by exciting discord among men. Guess what happens a couple of years ago, or probably still today, right? So we have no virtue, I guess. Do we even know what the virtues are? There's seven of them, right? Three of them are theological. Faith, hope, and love. What are the other four? Peanut butter, jelly, French toast, prudence, peanut butter, jelly, J, so justice, French toast, F, what is F? Fortitude, and T is temperance, right? So peanut butter, jelly, French toast. Yeah. So that's how you remember the other four. But the other three is um, faith, hope, and love, or charity, depending on the translation that you have there. So those are our virtues. So if you don't know what they are, if you want, if you're doing the rosary, right? Like part of the meditation, the rosary, like yes, you have the image of that mystery, but also there's the fruit of that, um, that specific mystery. We, we ask for something, say, um, Louis de Montfort said this, if there is, you might have the thing that you do, but if it doesn't have the intention behind it, it's just a thing that you do, right? You want, some, you want to get something out of it. Yes, you can have indulgence and things like that, but you have to intend to get it. You have to name what you want to get from it. Like what Jesus himself said, right? Ask and you shall receive. If you don't ask it, guess what? You don't receive it. Right? So, is there a virtue that we want to receive? Is there a virtue we want to receive? Which one? Yes, faith, hope, and love is by default. If you're in a state of grace, 
If you got baptism, it got into you. But if you're in a moral sin, confession is available at St. John Henry Newman between two masses. So, so, so that's the, um, the second uh, goal that the church wants um, when they pronounce the assumption. And the third one is finally to strengthen our belief in our own resurrection and to render it more effective. Do you firmly believe in the resurrection of the body? Yes, right? It's like in Easter, it's like, I do. We just don't say like, I believe in God, the Father Almighty. Yes, we do say that as a formula. But in a, um, in a more direct way, right? We say, I do. And that response for people who are married invokes that memory, right? That, um, yes, I do. I believe in that. Yes, you know? Um, so we're still in Easter, six Sunday, six Sunday Easter, and in two days, we will celebrate the Ascension, Ascension Thursday. And in John six, Jesus said to them, "Amen, Amen. I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you do not have life within you." Many of His disciples said, "This is a hard saying. Who can accept it?" Then Jesus responded, "Does this shock you?" What if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It's kind of weird like why I quoted that, because it's Ascension Thursday. But a little apologetic note. So if Jesus was speaking metaphorically in John 6, do you think he's metaphorically speaking about the Ascension? Right? So he's like, does this shock you? Like I say that I'll give you my flesh for you to eat? What if you see me go up? And he actually did go up. So what he said was true, right? So let's get a little bit of um, apologetic note then. So by the way, Ascension Thursday is a holy day of obligation for us in the ordinary at 7 p.m. in the Queen of Life Chapel. So for more info, approach me or Father um, for, for that after this. So back to the assumption. We should rejoice that the Blessed Mother um, got dibs on the resurrection. It's kind of how I put it. She got dibs on the resurrection. It is the logical conclusion of the Immaculate Conception, really. It is proof that the resurrection is real and that reincarnation is a counterfeit. The resurrection is real and the reincarnation is a counterfeit. It may sound like a fairy tale to you, but a glorified body is cool. It is awesome. You know, so you can walk through locked doors and you can go to any place at will. Like Jesus went in the road of the Emmaus, right? He explained the scripture and then he just disappeared. But the, but, but the, but the I think Simon and Cleopas, something like that, or somebody and Cleopas said like, but they were not bummed, like, hey, where Jesus went? Like, but, but they were filled, right? They were, their hearts were burning. And among other things, so those, like, again, the resurrection is cool. Like the fairy tales just appropriated all those cool things, right? So when you pray the fourth glorious uh, mystery, picture it, picture the assumption. There are several images of the Assumption online that right? you can look for. Them. There are icons of the Dermission of the Theotokos, if you're from the Eastern Rite, called the Dermission. Um, so you can use that as a visual aid. So ask for the grace of a happy death. Kind of morbid, right? But ask for a grace of a happy death. You want to die happy? Ask for it. You want to die miserable? If you don't ask for a happy death, you die miserably. That's what's going to happen. So... Ask for a grace of a happy death. And you can, use that, uh, you can use the blessed assumption for that. So I want to close with a lovely poem written by a woman named Mary Dixon Thayer. And I heard this from Bishop Fulton Sheen from many, of his, um, many times from his um, talks. So, lovely lady dressed in blue, teach me how to pray. God was just your little boy. Tell me what to say. Did you lift him up sometimes, gently on your knee? Did you sing to him the way mother does to me? Did you hold his hand at night and try telling him stories of the world? Oh, and did he cry? Do you really think he cares if I tell him things, you know, even the little things that happen? And do angels' wings make a noise? And can he hear me if I speak low?
does he understand me now? Tell me, for you know. Lovely lady dressed in blue, teach me how to pray. God was just your little boy, and you know the way. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Louis. Uh, one question I was wondering, and I've often heard a lot of objections from people. You began to uh, address it with the nature of sin as privation, as well as kind of our uh, our purpose, our end, uh, um, the um, the four causes. Causes uh, that sometimes people will say, aren't these dogmas a a way of making Mary? different than the rest of humanity. If she, if we fully believe that she's a human being, aren't these dogmas saying that she is um, superhuman or something? Right, so thanks for that question, Father. So um, I guess to put it, so is, does that, the, the dogmas, since Mary, I guess, um, fulfilled them in a really full sense, doesn't that just highlight how much different we are from her, or like we are less human, right? or she's like superhuman, right? Um, I wouldn't put it that way. Like I said, that um, nature and sin, so sin creates this vacuum, right? And then nature is somewhere here. We shouldn't despair that we're back here and nature is over here. Here's what God is calling us to. It should be like a force that pulls us towards it. Right? Well, now we know that there's an ideal. I guess now we, we have a hope, like, oh, this is possible. Like, God's grace can make that happen. Grace is the life of God himself, right, infused into us. So we, it, it propels us to what God has um, intended for us. Yes, unfortunately, original sin, um, we lost the privileges, right? We lost the privileges by meaning that we have to die, unfortunately. But I guess... In, in, our sen in that sense that it makes us realize that death is just a phase. It, may be, it will make us more humble that this is, this is our lot. But since we know that Mary was assumed, then we know that the resurrection is real. Like Jesus was not just assumed, like ascended to heaven because, well, apparently he was God, right? Like people make that excuse, like, well, like Jesus did not sin because he was God, you know? It's like, but that, that doesn't really leave us with anything. So, Mary, by, even though like, she was kind of like, hidden throughout the scriptures, right? But the last words that we know that um, was written for us by the beloved disciples, right? That Jesus, um, what she said, was like, when Jesus said, like, woman, what have you to do with me? My hour has not yet come. What is it to you and to me? My, my hour has not yet come during the wedding of Cana. People said, like, well, that's, that's Jesus rebuking Mary. It's like, God forbid, like, I don't think so. Right? Because like fourth commandment, right? Honor your father and mother. And but what Mary said was, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. It's not just like a word you'll read in John 2. It should echo throughout our life. Right? Like, yeah, do whatever he tells you. In a way, like in a nagging way, I guess. Right? Like do whatever he tells you, you know? Do whatever he tells you. Whatever he tells you. So Mary became an example for us um, for that. So that's matter. Hopefully, I answered that question. So, any additional questions? So um, my question is trying to understand it for myself, really. But if sin is like the absence of God's spirit, so to speak, or like you know, it's not a positive thing. It's the absence of something, right? Mm -hmm. As you were saying. Um, then how is it inherited by children of Adam and Eve? How do we inherit it? First, that's kind of, I have like a bunch of questions. Okay, sure, sure, so sure. how do we inherit it? And secondly, how does that relate to concupiscence? Mm. In that if Mary was immaculately conceived, did she experience concupiscence? 
And we know that Jesus was tempted in the desert. Right. So there was some sort of inclination to, or I guess the feeling that he might be rewarded if he gave in to those temptations or whatever. Mm. Right. Was that com- concupiscence? It, if it follows that concupiscence is, a, is an effect of original sin, then maybe he wouldn't have had concupiscence, right. which, is, which then is like, how was he tempted then? Right. Okay. So. Yeah, so let me just turn that off there. So um, the question was, so the first one is, like, if, if, priva- if even as a privation, original sin is a privation, how is that passed on? I guess to put it um, in a way, so here's what the catechism says in paragraph 404. The transmission of original sin is a mystery that we cannot fully understand. A transmission of a human nature deprived of original holiness and justice. Simply put, Adam and Eve, cannot give what they did not have. That's basically the, if we, if analogy, it probably is an analogy, the best way to put it, that if, it didn't, if Adam and Eve didn't have this thing, their offspring didn't have it either. So that is the transmission of it. So inherited by that, that they just didn't have, um, uh, weren't able to give what they did not have. And um, regarding concupiscence, which is one of the consequences of original sin, right? Um, I don't have the proper definition of what concupiscence is, but they say it's inordinate desire, right? So analogously speaking, it's kind of like we walk with a limp (laughs) throughout life and then that limp is basically to sin, right? So I won't say that Jesus being tempted was concupiscence because I think in a way the church is that concupiscence is more internal but um, Jesus' um, temptation was more external. It came from the enemy himself, right? It didn't come from, from within. So that is, I guess, the distinction I would, I would make um, between concupiscence um, and temptation. Uh, that's actually one of the errors that Martin Luther had. That concupiscence, he, um, co- he concluded that it is also sin. Because actually in the Latin word of, um, in the ninth and 10th commandment, Thou shalt not covet. The Latin word for it is concupiscus. Same word. Like, oh, hey, and concupiscence. Thou shalt not concupiscize. Right? That's kind of like what the ninth and 10th commandment kind of says. Therefore, it is sin. But the church has made the distinction, right? That concupiscence is the inordinate desire for, for sin. Like I said earlier, that it is that we tend to settle for less. So uh, Mary did not have that since it is the consequence of original sin. So concupiscence is not original sin. I think if I would, I would um, pull from this that original sin is um, not the same as personal sin that is committed. It is just a state that is passed down that is lacking something that's supposed to be there. And since you're lacking that something, there are abilities that um, you don't have. Like, um, so, yeah, so... If you have an injury in your leg, you tend to limp, something like that. So hopefully that answers your question.